are going to be in verses 17 through 20 this morning, looking at Christ and the Old Testament, Christ and the Old Testament scriptures. And uh, we're going to get right into the text this morning. So again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 is the text we're going to be in. As Christians, we should think rightly about Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. As we study the beginnings of the Christian faith, it should become obvious to us that Jesus did not come to start a revolutionary movement against the Old Testament scriptures. The verses before us here in Matthew 5, 17 through 18 say this much. Jesus says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Or as one translator says, do not even entertain that thought. Uh, This is an idea that we must never allow to have any foothold in our minds, Jesus is telling us. He didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. That is, he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures. Now, you may say, Matt, I'm following you on the part about Jesus not coming to abolish the law or the prophets. I can see that in the text, but why do you say that Jesus is referring to the Old Testament scriptures? And this is where I always say, thank you for asking those kinds of questions. I appreciate that a lot. And I thought about the answer to that that question before you asked it. And the way to answer that question is simply to say that when the Jewish people of Jesus' day talked about the Old Testament scriptures... They referred to them shorthand as the law and the prophets, or the law, prophets, and writings, or the law, prophets, and psalms. This is the way they talked in shorthand about the Old Testament scriptures. Um, Notice how Luke brings together the law and the prophets and the scripture as if they're synonymous. Luke recording that moment of Jesus with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection says, and beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We've got here Moses and all the prophets as a reference to all the scriptures. These scriptures being referred to here, of course, are the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament had not even been written at the time Jesus spoke to those two disciples he had to be referring then to the Old Testament scriptures. So for our purposes, notice that Luke equated the law and the prophets with the Old Testament scriptures. So when Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, he means that he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures. hope that's clear from what we're looking at here. Now what about this word abolish? What does this mean? Well, the word comes from the Greek word kataluo, and it means to end the effect or validity of something, to cause to be no longer in force. In the Gospel of Matthew, this word is used only three other times, each of which is a reference to the Jerusalem temple. For example, in Matthew 24, 2, Jesus is responding to his disciples who are pointing out the buildings of the temple. And he says to them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
These, these words thrown down translate the same Greek word as in Matthew 5, 17. It's a Greek word, kataluo. So we see with this usage here that what is going on is a complete demolition of something, a, a tearing down of something. So we, we may have a picture here of what Jesus is saying, that if the Old Testament scriptures are like a building, Jesus didn't come to tear down that building. He didn't come to destroy the scriptures. Uh, we may think of this as well. Jesus didn't come to take out of our Bibles the Old Testament and replace it with the New Testament. Jesus did not come to do that. What Jesus came to do with the Old Testament can be summarized in what he said in the rest of verse 17. He said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, part of the difficulty in interpreting what Jesus is saying in this verse is that the two words he uses here, abolish and fulfill, are really close in meaning to each other. Jesus is saying with this word abolish that he didn't come to end the effect of the Old Testament. And with the word fulfill, he is saying that instead he came to bring the Old Testament to its desired end. Now, what are we to say about this? Because with both of these words, the idea of something coming to an end is clearly in view. Uh, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to end the Old Testament. I have not come to end it, but to end it. Uh, what does Jesus mean by that? Um, I think we're served by this in verse 18. Jesus says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. This idea of accomplishing the scriptures. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But I want to note a few things about this verse because there's some significant things that Jesus is doing here. The first thing is that Jesus speaks of his own authority. He speaks from his own authority. Authority. He says, I say to you. And he does this eight other times in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 20, 22, 26, 28, 32, 34, 39, and 44. If you just look at the text there in chapter 5, he uses this formula, I say to you. Now, when someone from the Old Testament spoke the word of God, they didn't say, I say to you. Um, they said, the Lord said, or this is what the Lord says. But they didn't dare claim for themselves that they were the authority. Only God has the authority to lay claim to his own word. Yet notice with Jesus, he doesn't say, the Lord said, he says, I say to you. It's interesting, isn't it? I think that what Jesus is showing us here is that he has the authority to lay claim to God's word. What he says is God's word. Notice also that Jesus said that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Simple observation here. When we look around us, it's clear that heaven and earth haven't passed away. You're on earth right now. Terra firma, this is earth. So it's still here, yes? Which means that the law or the Old Testament scriptures haven't passed away. There is an enduring value of the Old Testament scriptures even up to this very day. And that value will continue till heaven and earth pass 
away. And finally, observe that not an iota or a dot will pass from the scriptures till the passing of heaven and earth. What does Jesus mean by an iota or a dot? Uh, your translation may say jot or tittle or smallest letter or least stroke of the pen. And each of these translations has a particular nuance, but most likely what Jesus is talking about is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the least stroke of one of those letters. Regarding the smallest letter, we may look at an example. Uh, Moses wrote here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, without vowel pointings, Bereshit bara Elohim eight hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. Did y'all catch that? Um, from, from right to left. When he wrote down um, these words, he used these small letters that are called the Yod. This is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so Jesus is saying that those small letters that make up those words are inspired by God. They will not pass away until all is accomplished. Uh, consider another passage from Psalm 8. I won't read it to you, but this is Psalm 8, verse 1. If we look at those words, we can see the Hebrew letter Dalit. And notice that small stroke at the start of that letter. A little excess on it indicates that you're looking at the Hebrew letter Dalit. So Jesus is saying that not even that little stroke right there is going to pass away from God's word until all is accomplished. It too is inspired by God. Now what does this have to do with Jesus saying that he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament but to fulfill it? Well, it means that he didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. Instead, here is the key from verse 18. He came to accomplish it. See that? Back in verse 17, the word was fulfilled. And here the word is accomplished. Jesus is using these terms together, which means Jesus didn't come to deconstruct the Old Testament. He came to show that he is the one who accomplishes the Old Testament. David Turner writes, Far from abolishing the law, Jesus brings it to its desired goal because not even the slightest detail will go unaccomplished. The image of, I thought of was that of a river. The Old Testament is like a river. And Jesus didn't come to set up a dam on that river and dry up the water. He came and placed himself right in the middle of the river as the one to whom all the waters flow. All the direct prophecies, types and shadows and moral obligations flow toward Jesus. All the covenants of promise, the Abrahamic, Davidic, and new covenant are in the current that stream to their end in Christ. So if we are to understand the Old Testament, we must see it in light of Jesus. Amen? We say this in our doctrinal statement here at JBC. The scriptures center on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as seen in his first and second comings. Hence, no portion of scripture is rightly interpreted until it leads to him. At JBC, we are Christ-centered because the Bible is Christ-centered. 
And unless we have considered how Christ is the goal to which the Old Testament flows, then we haven't fully considered it yet. This is what Jesus told the Jews of his day. He said to them in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus was chiding those Jews of his day, not because they were diligent in the scriptures, but because they did not see the one those scriptures were about. They were and they are about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said effectively the same thing to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? I love this verse. We've already made reference to it. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Once again, we see that the scriptures testify to Christ. They point to him. He is their goal. Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He came to fulfill them. So what we learn from verses 17 through 18 is that we should think rightly about Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. Now, what we learn from verse 19 is that we should obey and teach the Scriptures. We should obey and teach the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus said in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says here that there is a person who will be called least in the kingdom. The description of this person is one who relaxes on even the least of the Old Testament commands and teaches others to do the same. This is the person who looks at even the least of the commandments of the Old Testament and sees no value in them for faith and practice. Or looks at certain parts of the scripture and says, I don't need to read those, those are insignificant. An example may be, ah, you don't need to read the book of Leviticus. It doesn't have anything in it that is significant for your life. That's relaxing on the Old Testament. Or the Psalms were just for the Israelites' worship. They don't contain anything of benefit for our worship today. That is relaxing on the Old Testament. Jesus indicates that we must not do that. The implication of what he says in this verse is that we need to obey the Old Testament as well as to teach it. In fact, he says the status of a person in the future kingdom is related to their treatment of the Old Testament. There will be those called the least, Jesus says. These are those who relax on the Old Testament. And on the flip side, there are those who will be called great. Notice that. And these are those who obey and teach the Old Testament. Now, I think there's some clarification needed here. Uh, We don't enter into the kingdom by works. We get in by grace through faith. But that faith will produce the righteous works which we will be rewarded for in the future kingdom. William Hendrickson, being sensitive to these kind of distinctions in Scripture, says 
this about what Jesus says regarding levels of greatness in the kingdom. He says, although all is of grace and nothing whatever is earned by the citizen of the kingdom, yet his rank or position in that kingdom will depend on and be commensurate with his respect for God's holy law. Our holiness in this life will affect our greatness in the future kingdom. In particular, our personal growth and discipleship from the Old Testament will impact our rewards in the kingdom of heaven. And I think that's incentive to read, to obey, and to teach the Old Testament scriptures. Um, But I thought that someone might read Jesus' words here and think, well, hey, the guy who relaxed on the least of the Old Testament commands, at least he got in. Uh, He made it in the kingdom. I'll just be that guy. Um, I don't think that is Jesus' intent here. Uh, Jesus didn't teach about there being least and great in the kingdom so that um, his people could hear that and opt for the lowest position in the kingdom. Um, You know, when I was in school, you could contract for a grade in certain classes. Any of you guys ever done that before? I just want to ask before I tell you what I'm about to say so I can not feel alone up here. But what, thank you. Yeah, I feel so. Pastor Ben, I feel better now. Um, but when I was in seminary, I was taking like 23 hours, um, and that's not like a fishing story, okay? That's pretty accurate. Um, and I was finishing up a, a church internship, and then Brichelle um, and I were about to move here to Tulsa to yoke up with Pastor Ben in, in church ministry. It was a crazy busy time of the year, and so I, I had to figure out what I was going to do about my final paper that I was supposed to write. It's your big paper that you're supposed to write. And I was just absolutely swamped, so I contracted for a C. Thank you. It was the will of God. And uh, as I look back on that, I think um, that was the right thing to do, okay? Um, I think so. You, you be the judge on that. But my point in telling you that story or that whole little thing I said was to say, I don't think that that's what we should take away when we come to what Jesus says here. Jesus is not saying, hey, you can just contract for a C in the kingdom of heaven. Because what that would essentially amount to is that Jesus would be saying to you, it's okay if you don't pay much attention to the Old Testament scriptures. And I think we've already seen pretty clearly that's not what Jesus is saying. Amen. We need to be those kind of people who when we read the scripture and Jesus sets a bar for it, we don't think, I'm going to see how much I cannot reach that bar. Okay? We need to reach the bar that Jesus gives for us by the grace of God. We have the Holy Spirit within us to do that. Amen. We should obey and teach the Old Testament scriptures. But this is probably a question that you've had in your mind so far. How do we do that as New Testament Christians? New Covenant believers in Christ. Uh, We don't come to the Old Testament scriptures and obey things that have been fulfilled. Um, I mean, the same Jesus who said these words in Matthew 5.19 also commissioned more than a handful of apostles to write and oversee the writing of the New Testament. And in that New Testament, we read things like this, the law was our guardian until Christ in order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Galatians 3, 24 through 25. Or what about this? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10, 4. And then in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, that is the old covenant, obsolete. Hebrews 8, 13. What are these verses showing us? Well, they're showing us at the very least that certain things in the Old Testament amounted to a guardian that led us to Christ. That Christ brought an end to the law. That the old covenant has become obsolete now that the new covenant has come. In essence, there are things in the Old Testament that do not continue into the New Testament because Christ has, and here is the key word, fulfilled them. He has fulfilled them. Now, what are some things that Christ has fulfilled? How about dietary restrictions? You know, it's because Christ has fulfilled the dietary restrictions that we're not obligated to keep them today. Um, we don't have to make an announcement to remind everyone for the Resurrection Sunday breakfast in April. We will not be having pork for the breakfast tacos. Well, because Leviticus 11 says, uh, 11 says that we shouldn't eat pig. Um, and aren't you glad that you can eat pig? Bacon? Amen. All right? And... and uh, um, we also don't have to refrain from eating an entree of shrimp scampi. Um, certain birds of the heavens that were once detestable for God's people to eat are okay to eat now with the coming of Christ. And uh, we get explicit mention of this when it, uh, it was said in Mark seven nineteen that Jesus had pronounced all foods clean. And also when Peter had a vision uh, in which it was told him, this vision that came uh, with a sheet that came down from heaven, had all these animals on it. And Peter uh, said, Lord, I'm, I'm not going to eat those things because they are unclean. Well, the Lord said to him, do not call uh, what is clean unclean, uh, pronouncing that these things had become clean now with the coming of Christ. So there are no longer uh, dietary restrictions. Uh, Jesus brought those to their designed end. Um, and also with the coming of Christ, we no longer have to uh, observe the sacrificial laws. And, for example, we're not obligated every year to have a high priest uh, cast lots between two goats on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, one to be slaughtered for atonement and the other as a scapegoat. Uh, the one being a sacrificial offering and the other being sent off into the wilderness after the high priest laid his hands on the goat and confessed the sins of the people, uh, that goat would be let go to show the people that the goat had run away with their sins. Uh, we don't have to do that as God's new covenant people, and we don't have to do that because Jesus is both the atoning sacrifice for our sins and the scapegoat. Uh, it is said in Hebrews 10:12 that Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And then a couple of verses later it says, for by a single sacrifice he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what had to be done every year on the Day of Atonement and what the author of Hebrews said earlier in chapter 10 could not possibly take away sins, Jesus did with one act on the cross. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, another verse to write down here. God made him to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. Um, but Jesus is also our scapegoat. We don't talk about the scapegoat very much. We probably use it in our vernacular, talking about somebody who is a scapegoat for something. But in fact, there was a scapegoat. And when we look at the work of, of the cross, we observe that the language of Jesus' death is described in such a way that he is the final scapegoat. As the high priest laid his hands on the goat and confessed the sins of the people, um, so also, but even more significantly, Isaiah 53, 6, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And, and as the scapegoat ran away with the people's sins as a picture of the removal of their sins from God's sight, so also, but even more significantly, because of Jesus, God says, I will remember their sins no more. So Jesus is our sacrificial lamb and scapegoat. We no longer need to observe the sacrificial system. He has fulfilled it in his own person and his death on the cross. Amen? Now, these and other things Jesus has fulfilled, these are just a sampling of things. But whatever uh, Jesus has not fulfilled from the Old Testament remains for us. Uh, many of his promises of a messianic age and resurrection and the eternal state and the new heavens and the new earth, these promises and many more are still there and still demand our heart's earnest expectations. And not only that, but the moral law of the Old Testament has not been abrogated. Uh, we're still obligated to keep the law of God as expressed in the Ten Commandments, the New Testament authors do not think the Big Ten are no longer applicable for Christians. I just want to walk through these briefly so we can see this. Uh, in the first table of the Ten Commandments, we see this. Uh, do not worship any other gods. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6 that there is one God, and that God alone deserves our worship. And the second commandment, do not make idols. John says in 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Third commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Paul wants God's name to not be reviled or held in a vain way, but to be honored. And then the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath holy. This is the most debated commandment amongst Christians. Does it continue or does it not? Well, Jesus said in Mark 2.27 that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Notice about that that Jesus did not say the Sabbath was made for Israel. Uh, Israel, no, Israel for the Sabbath. I think I just mis misspoke that. Really bad. That was wonderful. Jesus did not say the Sabbath was made for Israel, not Israel for the Sabbath. There we go. Thank you. My, my wife is nodding over here with affirmation. Um, as such, something about the Sabbath continues, I think. And what I think continues is the principle of rest. We have to rest from our work or we will burn out. But what doesn't continue in the New Testament is the Sabbath observance in the way that the Israelites observed it. Uh, what day were they supposed to observe the Sabbath on? 
It was Saturday. We get into the writings of the New Testament, and that day is no longer required to be observed as a Sabbath day. Matter of fact, Paul said in Romans 14.5, I have this up there for you. He says, one person regards one day holier than the other days, and another regards them all alike. Each must be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul is essentially saying that there are no standards for a Sabbath day that all Christians have to observe. And so I think this makes the fourth commandment unique amongst the commandments. But as we move into the second table of the Ten Commandments, the New Testament clearly brings directly over those commandments. Commandment number five, children, you listening? We don't have any children. Oh, yes, we do. Okay, good. Honor your father and mother is repeated by Paul in Ephesians 6, 1 through 2. And then uh, the sixth commandment, do not murder, is restated by Peter in 1 Peter 4, 15. And then the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, is referred to by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Let me catch myself up here. And then with the eighth commandment, do not steal. Stealing is condemned by Paul in Ephesians 4, 8. And also do not lie is restated in Revelation 20, 21, 8, where Jesus says those who make a practice of lying will go to the lake of fire for eternity. And then in the 10th commandment, do not covet. Coveting is a sin as stated by Paul in Colossians 3, 5. Okay? The, the, the commandments, the big 10, are still around for us today, repeated in the New Testament. But I want to I wrap this up because there's something about these commandments uh, that the New Testament and even the Old Testament picks up on. Um, we saw in the first four one's vertical relationship with God, right? All, all that that first four was talking about was really our relationship with God. And, and then in 5 through 10, we saw one's horizontal relationship with others. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's commandments one through four. And then he says, this is obviously the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's commandments five through 10. And then Jesus goes on to say, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Notice the law and the prophets. We're seeing that over again. Jesus is showing us that to love is to fulfill the law. And now Paul will go on and affirm Jesus on this. He says in Romans chapter 13, uh, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul is in lockstep with Jesus. To love is to fulfill. The scribes were professionals, and their profession was to study the scriptures and teach people how to apply it to their lives. The Pharisees were part of a movement within Judaism. They sought to scrupulously carry out the Old Testament, and their focus was on things like the tithe, ceremonial purity and how to carry out the
could walk over it and rub the dirt with your spit, and that would be considered cultivating the ground. These are the kind of bean-counting sort of things that uh, the, the Pharisees were, were all about. Um, but taken together, these two groups of religious leaders had the respect of the Jewish people. Uh, they were looked up to as those closest to God. So when Jesus said here to that original audience, they had to have a superior righteousness to that of the scribes and the Pharisees um, if they wanted to enter the kingdom, that he would have shocked them with that saying. That would have come as a shocker. They would have thought, there's no way for me to reach that level of righteousness. Scribes and the Pharisees are so godly that I can't possibly be godlier than them. That's very likely what was going on in these people's minds as they heard Jesus. But evidently, Jesus didn't think, and this is something we need to think about, but Jesus didn't think that these religious leaders really had it going. Um, Their righteousness was not the standard of righteousness the people should ultimately look up to. Now, we know this because in Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces a particular woe on the scribes and the Pharisees, and it goes like this. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Um, Jesus saw right through their outward veneer of righteousness and pointed right to their sinful hearts. He went beneath the surface of their actions to their motivations and the loves of their hearts and found there nothing but desires for sin. Yes, they looked righteous to others, but they didn't have the kind of righteousness that God cares about. And what kind of righteousness is that? A heart righteousness. A righteousness of the heart. So when Jesus said back in 520 that you have to have a superior righteousness, the scribes and Pharisees to get into the kingdom, he was saying that they have to have a righteousness of the heart. And that standard really is higher than the standard of the religious leaders. Your heart has to be right. Now, rightly so, we have to ask then, who can be saved? (laughs) We're all doomed. Who has that kind of righteousness? I mean, Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the human heart. What human heart then can meet the standard that Jesus sets in 520? Romans 3.10 says, No one is righteous, no, not even one. The human plight seems hopeless. How can anyone get into the kingdom of heaven? Well, the simple answer is that we need the righteousness of someone else. We need the righteousness of Jesus given to us through faith. This is one of the beautiful pieces of good news about the gospel. It's that a sinful human being can only by a sovereign work of God's grace turn in repentant faith to Christ and be justified. That person's sins can be put on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness can be credited to their account. 
And when that happens, and only when that happens, can a person have the kind of righteousness they need to enter the kingdom. It is a gift of grace. It cannot be earned. God gives it through faith and faith alone. And that's what God has done for us, brothers and sisters. He has made us, due to our position in Christ, fit for the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Glory be to him and him alone. But this righteousness that we're now in the position of because we are in Christ is a righteousness that God wants to set us apart progressively and gradually and gradually to become more like in our practice. We call this progressive sanctification. God wants to not only save us and give us the position of righteous standing before him in Christ, but he also wants us to look like that image, the imputation that we have been given. He wants us to look like Jesus. Amen? And so as we finish up chapter 5 of of Matthew chapter 5, I'm not going to do that for you today. Pastor Ben will next week. We're going to see Jesus drive to the heart of issues to push us beyond just looking at our lives on the surface and asking the question, where are our hearts? Because God wants to change our hearts today. He wants us to have purity of heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, right? For they shall see God. He wants us to examine our hearts. I love the way that Pastor Ben set the table today for us to examine ourselves, to look within our hearts confess sin and repent of it. That is the mark of a true, genuine believer is repentance. Not perfection, but repentance. And that's the good work that God wants to do within us to conform us to the image of his son. Amen? Let's pray.